Hello and welcome to another edition of Maplewood Barn Radio Theater, brought to you in conjunction with KBIA. For tonight's presentation, we've chosen a mystery, although there's not much we can tell you about the background of the story. It was published anonymously in the 1909 edition of the Lock and Key Mystery Series and is simply titled The Puzzle Box. But it does bring back some old friends of ours from other anonymous stories like The Lost Duchess and The Pipe, our protagonists, Tress and Pew, have appeared in previous Maplewood productions. And even though we have no idea who wrote these marvelous stories, they're best friends and fierce competitors, both being collectors of antiquities and novel oddities. So now, let's call on Mr. Tress to guide us through the story of The Puzzle Box. Pew came into my room one morning holding something wrapped in a piece of brown paper. Tress, I have brought you something on which you may exercise your ingenuity. What do you think of that? Actually, I don't think much of it at all. Ah, I was prepared for your confession of ignorance. I have noticed, Tress, that you generally think nothing of an article which really deserves the attention of a thoughtful mind. Possibly, as you think so little of it, you will be able to solve the puzzle. Why? It's just a box, maybe seven inches long by three inches broad. Where's the puzzle? If you will carefully examine the lid of the box, you will see. Ah, yes, I see it now. It is very faded. Let's see. It says... Puzzle to open box. No, I can't read it from there. Where did you get it? I observed that box on a tray outside of a second-hand furniture shop. It struck my eye. I took it up. I examined it. I inquired of the proprietor of the shop what the puzzle was. He replied that that was more than he could tell me. He himself had made several attempts to open the box, and all of them had failed. I purchased it. I took it home. I have tried, and I have failed. I am aware, Tress, of how you pride yourself upon your ingenuity. I do not doubt that if you try, you will not fail. So, the box cannot be opened. Well, let's see what we have here. It is at least well made, no more than two ounces. Hmm, sounds hollow. No hinge, nothing to indicate that it has ever been opened. But it can be opened, of that I have no doubt. The only question is how. Use your extraordinary powers of observation, Tress. Tell me. What you see. Well, the box is obviously not new. At a rough guess, I would say it is at least 50 years old. There are certain signs of age which cannot escape the practiced eye. Yes, but what about the inlaid finish? Yes, small pieces of inlaid wood. Several woods have been used. They are different colors, but I believe they are all hardwoods. The pieces are various shapes. Hexagonal, octagonal, triangular, square, oblong, and even circular. The process of inlaying them has been beautifully done. It is difficult to see where the pieces join. It seems joined solid, so to speak. It struck me as an excellent example of marquetry. I was over-hasty in my assessment. This box of yours is more interesting than I first supposed. Is it for sale? No, it is not to be sold, nor is it to be given away. I have brought it to you for the simple purpose of ascertaining if you have the ingenuity enough to open it. I will engage to open it in two seconds. With a hammer. No, no, I could open it with a hammer. The trick is to open it without breaking it. Let me see. Where did I put my magnifying glass? Yes, there it is. I will give you one piece of information, Pew. Unless I am mistaken, the secret lies in one of these little pieces of inlaid wood. You push it, you press it, or something, and the whole affair flies open. That's what I thought at first, but now I'm not so sure. I have pressed every separate piece of wood. I have tried to move each piece in every direction. Nothing. My theory was a hidden spring. But there must be a hidden spring of some sort, or it must be opened by force. I suppose the box is empty. I thought it was at first, but now I'm not sure of that either. 
It all depends on the position in which you hold it. Hold it in this position, like this, close to your ear. Do you have a small hammer? There. Tap it softly with the hammer. You notice a sort of vibration inside. Uh, yes, you are right, Pew. There is something inside, something strange. It seems to echo, tapping back at me, almost as if it was a living thing. But you don't think that there is something alive inside the box? There can't be. The box must be airtight. How do we know that? How can we tell that no minute interstices have been left for the express purpose of ventilation? Listen, there is something peculiar with the tapping. It is only when I hold the box in this particular position and tap at this very spot that I hear the answering taps from within. I tell you what it is, Pew. What I hear is the reverberation of some machinery. Do you think so? I'm sure of it. Give the box to me. It sounds to me like the echoing tick-tick of some great beetle, like the sort of noise which a death watch makes. Leave it to you, Pew, to find a remarkable explanation for a simple fact. If the explanation leans towards the supernatural, so much the better to you. I know otherwise. The sound which you hear is merely the throbbing or the trembling of the mechanism that opens the box. The mechanism is placed just where you are tapping. It sounds to me like the ticking of a death watch. My dear Pew, give it an extra hard tap and you will see. And I've done it now. What have you done? Broken something, I think. No, it seems all right. But I could have sworn I damaged something. I heard it smash. Give me the box. To my ear, it sounds like glass smashing. I wonder if there is anything fragile inside your precious puzzle, Pew. And, if so, if we are breaking it little by little. What is that noise? It is like the tick, tick of some large and unusually clear-toned clock. What was that? It sounded like some small creature in the extremity of anguish. It was one of the eeriest shrieks I've ever heard. Ah, there for a moment I thought the creature inside had expired. I don't think there is a creature inside, Pew. It seems clear to me that some sort of machinery has been set in motion inside the box. How it was set in motion, I have no idea. Perhaps we have subjected the box to so much handling, to such pressing and hammering, that we were unwittingly hit upon the spring which set the whole thing in motion. What about the screeching? I believe there is some living creature inside the box. The cries sound like some small animal in agony. That is not an animal, Pew. It is rust. The same rust which prevented the mechanism from acting at once is causing the screeching now. The unsettling sounds are caused by nothing which cannot be easily fixed with a few drops of oil. I'm not so sure. I wonder how long this little performance is going to continue, and what is going to happen when it ceases. It obviously contains some curious mechanism. Or a poor creature trapped inside. Pew, please pull yourself back into reality. No creature could survive long in an airtight box. No, the tick, tick, tick suggests clockwork. Perhaps it is supposed to run a certain length of time, and then... And then what? Well, how should I know? It may be an explosive and is set to go off at any moment. What? With us standing right here beside it? Let's move away, Tress. Over here. Yes, I suppose that would be safest. Yet, the box is so light, just a few ounces. Its lightness, though, might be part of the ingenious inventor's little game. There are explosives which can work a great deal of damage with considerably less than a couple of ounces. Wait, listen, it stopped. If it's going to explode, this would be the time. Brace yourself, Pew. No, nothing. I wish you had kept your precious puzzle box at home. 
This sort of thing tries my nerves. Do you think it is safe to touch it again? I imagine so. Whatever is inside seems to have stopped. You are right. There is not a sound from inside. Perhaps if I banged it on the table. I don't think I would do that if I was you. Something might still go off at any moment for all I know. Yes, you are right. It would be too much of a joke if your puzzle box blew your hand off. Just set it down at the moment and let's think about this. Yes, good idea. I wonder, has the clockwork run down or has the rust caused the mechanism to hang up? After making all that commotion, the thing might at least open. I have half a mind to take that hammer and open it the other way. Now, Pew, we have agreed to refrain from using force. No. We must respect the ingenuity of the person who created this puzzle. Listen, it is starting back up. Yes, it is distinctly louder than before. This time it might really explode. Get back! Uh, look at the box. Watch closely. It is moving. Yes, it seems to be vibrating and jumping about. And it seems to be increasing in size. Is that an optical illusion? No, I see it too. It seems to be bulging out at the scene. Tress, it must be a ghost. Oh, Pew, you are always the first to offer a supernatural explanation for anything you don't understand. No, I suspect the box is made in layers, and the ingenious mechanism it contains is forcing the sides upward and outward. To me, it sounds like the ticking of a death watch. There is either a bomb or an evil spirit inside that box, and I don't want to be here when it opens. I will wait in the restaurant across the street while you continue your examination, if you will excuse me. And if the entire building explodes while you are across the street sipping coffee, I assume you will see that I get a decent burial. Of course. I took the box in my hand. I could feel something striking against the bottom of the box, like the tap, tap, tapping of a tiny hammer. This was really quite a puzzle Pew had produced. I sat in a chair opposite the table where the box sat, lit a pipe, and waited. Eventually, my patience was rewarded with a small but clearly audible pop. The box fell to pieces before my eyes. The puzzle had solved itself. The box was open. Open with a vengeance, one might say. Like the unfortunate Humpty Dumpty who, so the chroniclers tell us, sat on a wall Surely all the king's horses and all the king's men could never put Pew's puzzle together again. How those pieces had ever been joined together was a mystery, but now I saw how the puzzle worked. The box contained an arrangement of springs which, on being released, had expanded themselves in different directions until their mere expansion had rent the box to pieces. There were springs lying amid the ruins they had caused. There was something else amid that ruin besides those springs, and there was a small piece of paper. I picked it up. On the reverse side of it was written in a minute, crabbed hand. A present for you. What was a present for me? I looked and could scarcely believe my eyes. There, poised between two upright wires, the bent ends of which held it aloft in the air, was either a piece of glass or a crystal. The scrap of paper had covered it. Now I understood what the tapping sound from inside the box was. When Pew and I had tapped the box with the hammer, it had caused the wires to oscillate, and in these oscillations the crystal, which they had suspended, had touched the sides of the box. Was this the present? This crystal? I regarded it intently. It looked like... No, it couldn't be. It couldn't be a diamond. The idea is ridiculous, absurd. No man in his right mind would place a diamond inside a flimsy puzzle box. The thing was as big as a walnut. And yet... I am a pretty good judge of precious stones. If it was not an uncut diamond, it was the best imitation I had seen. I examined it closely and then more closely. The more my wonder grew. It was a diamond, and yet the idea was preposterous. 
Who would put a diamond as big as a walnut in a little puzzle box? I took the crystal to the window. I drew the blind. I let the sunshine fall on it. I examined it again, closely and minutely, with the aid of my pocket lens. It was a diamond. There could be no doubt of it. My heart beat faster as I recognized the fact that I was holding in my hand, in all probability, a fortune. Of course, Pew knew nothing of what I had discovered, and there was no reason why he should know, not in the least. The only difficulty was that if I kept my own counsel and sold the stone and utilized the proceeds of the sale, I would have to invent a story which would account for my sudden ascension to fortune. Pew knows almost as much of my affairs as I do myself. That is the worst of these old friends. At that moment, there was a knock on the door, and I snatched the crystal from its wire holders and placed it in my pocket. Pew briskly re-entered the room. Ah, Pew, did you regain your courage? Well, I would not go so far as to say that. I got bored sitting there in the restaurant watching. There were no explosions or ghosts flitting about, so I thought I would come see what, if anything, you have discovered. See for yourself. <gasps> dress! Dress! What happened to the box? That's the solution to the puzzle. Did you solve it without breaking it open? It solved itself. Our handling and tapping and hammering must have freed the springs inside the box, and they have caused it to come apart. Dear me, how strange. And what are those two little upright wires? I suppose they're part of the puzzle. And was there anything in the box? What's this piece of paper? A present for you. What does it mean? Tress, was this in the box? It was. What's it mean about a present? Was there anything else in the box? Anything else in the box? Now let me think. Tress, stop toying with me. Tell me what was in the box. My dear Pew, how do you know that there was anything in the box to tell you about? I know there was. Indeed. If you know there was something in the box, perhaps you will be kind enough to tell me what that something was. Tress, you, you wouldn't play tricks to an old friend, would you? You are right, Pew. I wouldn't. Though I believe there have been occasions on which you have had doubts upon the subject. Think of the tastes we have in common, you and I. We're both collectors. Yes, we're both collectors. I make my interests yours, and you make your interests mine. Isn't that so, Pew? Tress, what, what was in the box? I will be frank with you, Pew. If there was something in the box, would you be willing to go halves with me? Go halves? You thief! Tress, give me what is mine. With pleasure, Pew, if you will tell me what is yours. If if you don't give me what was in the box, I, I'll send for the police. Do. Then I will be able to hand them what was in the box in order that it might be restored to its proper owner. Its proper owner? I'm its proper owner. Excuse me, but I don't understand how that can be, at least until the police have made inquiries. I would say the real owner was the person from whom you purchased the box, or, more probably, the person from whom he purchased it, and by whom it was sold, in ignorance or by mistake. Thus, Pew, if you will only send for the police, we shall earn the gratitude of a person that neither of us has ever heard of in our lives. I for discovering the contents of the box, and you for returning them. Tress, I, I don't think you need to use a tone like that to me. It isn't friendly. What... What was in the box? Let us understand each other, Pew. If you don't hand over the contents of the box to the police, I go halves. What a fool I was to trust you with the box. I knew I couldn't trust you. Now, Pew, if you desire it, I will ring for the police. Yes, that would be the right thing after all, wouldn't it? I'll summon the representatives of the law so they can handle this whole situation. No, no, that's it. You win, no police, and you will get half. Now, what was in the box? I get half? Yes, that is what I said. 
Is your hearing impaired? No, my ears are working wonderfully. I wanted to ensure that we have a meeting of the minds. I don't think it necessary that the terms of our little understanding should be contractually consummated in black and white. I believe that, under the circumstances, I can trust you, Pew, and I also believe that in this matter, you don't trust me. Here, I will show it to you. This was what was in the box. What is it? That is what I want to learn. Let me look at it. You are welcome to look at it in my hand. Look at it as long as you like and as closely as you like. It's... it's... Tress. Is it a diamond? That is the question I have been asking myself. Give it to me. Let me look at it. It will be safe with me. It's mine. Tut tut, Pew. Pardon me, but it belongs neither to you nor to me. It belongs, in all probability, to the person who sold that puzzle to the man from whom you bought it. Perhaps some weeping widow, Pew, or hopeless orphan. Think of it. Let us have no further misunderstanding on that point, my dear old friend. Still, because you are my dear old friend, I am willing to trust you with this discovery of mine on condition that you don't attempt to remove it from my sight and that you return it to me the moment I ask. You're, you're very hard on me, Tress, but yes, I promise I'll return it to you. Good. Here is the jewel and here is my magnifying lens. With the aid of that glass, you can subject it to an acute examination. Please give it the most thorough scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Tress, it's, it's a diamond. A Brazil diamond. It's worth a fortune. I'm glad you think so. Glad I think so? Don't you think that this is a diamond? You're almost as good of a judge's gem as I am. Thank you for that almost compliment. It appears to be a diamond. Under ordinary conditions, I would say without hesitation that it was a diamond. But when I consider the circumstances of its discovery, I am driven to doubts. How much did you give for that puzzle, Pew? Nine pence. The fellow wanted a shilling, but I gave him nine pence. He seemed content. Nine pence? Does it seem reasonable that we should find a diamond which, if it is a diamond, is the finest stone I have ever saw and handled in a nine-penny puzzle? It is not likely that the diamond had lodged itself in the box by accident. It has evidently been placed there to be found, and apparently by anyone who chanced to solve the puzzle. Witness the writing on that scrap of paper. I'm telling you, Tress, it's a diamond. I'll stake my reputation on the fact that this is a diamond. And I agree, Pew. It certainly appears to be a diamond. Still, though, I smell a rat. What do you mean? I strongly suspect that the person who placed that diamond inside that box intended to have a joke at the expense of the person who discovered it. What that joke is supposed to be is more than I can say at this time, but I would like to make a bet with you that the man who concocted that puzzle was an ingenious practical joker. I may be wrong, Pew. We shall see. But until I approve the contrary, I don't believe that the maddest man who ever lived would throw away a diamond worth, apparently, shall we say at least a thousand pounds. A thousand pounds? This diamond is worth a good deal more than a thousand pounds. Well, that only makes my case stronger. I don't believe that the maddest person in the world would throw away a diamond worth more than a thousand pounds with such utter wantonness. No, Pew, this kind of diamond in a nine-penny puzzle? Something is askew. The evidence does not fit together. There have been some eccentric characters in the world, some very eccentric characters, but let's put it to the test. I know somebody who would be quite thrilled to have such a diamond as this and who, moreover, would be willing to pay a fair price for its possession. I will take it to him and see what he says. Pew, hand me back that diamond. My dear Tress, I was only Pew, going... Pew, you will either hand me that at once, or I will summon the representatives of the law. Tress, please listen to I reason. I will be able to reason much better with the diamond in my possession. Give it to me. Now. Oh. All right, here. Joseph Tress, 
it is my solemn conviction, and I have no hesitation in saying so in plain English, that you are a thief. My dear Pew, it seems to me that we show every promise of becoming a couple of thieves. Don't lump me into the same category as yourself. Not at all. You are worse than I. It is you who decline to return the contents of the box to its proper owner. Put it to yourself. You have some common sense, my dear old friend. Do you suppose that a diamond worth more than a thousand pounds is to be honestly bought for nine pence? And even if that diamond did not exist, think of the box itself and the person who wrought it. The intricacy of the mechanism, the delicacy of the design. It was someone of very high intelligence. I was a fool ever to let you have the box. I ought to have known better than to have trusted you. Goodness knows, you have given me sufficient cause to mistrust you, over and over again. Your character is only too notorious. You have plundered friend and foe alike. Friend and foe alike. As for the rubbish which you call your collection, nine-tenths of it I know as a fact you have stolen in a bold-faced fashion. Who stole my Sir Walter Raleigh pipe? Wasn't it a man named Pew? Look here, Joseph Tress. I'm looking, but I don't see much. Oh, it's no good talking to you. Not in the least. You're, you're dead to all the promptings of conscience. May I inquire, Mr. Tress, what is it you propose to do? I propose to do nothing except summon the representatives of law and order. Failing that, my dear Pew, I had some faint, very vague notion of taking the contents of your ninepenny puzzle to a certain firm in Hatton Garden who are dealers in precious stones, and to learn from them if they are disposed to give anything for it, and if so, what? I will come with you. With pleasure, on condition that you pay for the cab. I pay for the cab? I will pay half. Not at all. You will either pay the whole fare or I will not go. No, instead I will summon the police, give them the diamond, tell them the entire sequence of events, and wash my hands of the entire thing. Pew, it is a three-shilling cab fare from here to Hatton Garden. If you propose to get another opinion about this stone, you will please hand over that three shillings before we start. You are an extortionist. That's what you are. Here, take them. Ah, I have to admit, Pew, there are few things I enjoy as much as getting money out of you. You have paid the price of admission, and we are off to Hatton Garden. So, what do you think we should get for the diamond? You can't expect to get much for the contents of a nine-penny puzzle, not even the price of a cab fare, Pew. Tress, I don't think we ought to let it go for less than... 5,000 pounds. Seriously, Pew, I doubt whether, when the whole affair is ended, we shall get 5,000 pence for it, or, for that matter, 5,000 farthings. But why not? Why not? It's a magnificent stone. Magnificent. I'll stake my life on it. There's a warning voice within my breast, right here, that ought to be in yours, Pew. Something tells me, perhaps it is the unusually strong vein of common sense which I possess, that the contents of your nine-penny puzzle will be found to be a magnificent prank, an ingenious practical joke, my friend. I don't believe it. I think you do. At any rate, it's time for us to find out we're here. Uh, hello. Uh, how can I help you gentlemen today? I want to sell you a diamond. We want to sell you a diamond. Does that, does that mean... I want to sell you a diamond. Here it is. What will you give me for it? I, it is big. I, let me see. I, oh, oh my. Well, what do you think? This is, this, this is a fine stone, gentlemen. Yes, we thought so too. See, I told you, Tress. What will you give me for it? 
Do you mean what? What will I give you for it right now? A, a cash on the barrel head? That's correct. What will you give me for it? Cash on the barrel head. Let me look at it again. Um, hmm. Um, well, uh, that's rather a large order. I, we don't often get a chance of buying a stone such as this across the counter. I, what do you say to, well, uh, 10,000 pounds? 10,000 pounds? 10,000? <gasps> if you can give me references or satisfy me in any way as to your bona fides for this diamond, I, I am prepared to give you an open check for 10,000 pounds, or if you prefer it, the cash instead. Well, we know where we stand now. Perhaps mm -hmm. we should get another opinion before we... We'll take it. Cash or check. Uh, my dear sir, please excuse me for saying that you arrive very rapidly at your conclusions. In the first place, how can you make sure that it is a diamond? Well, I would not be very well suited for my profession if I could not tell a diamond at first glance, particularly one as large and fine as this one. But how can you be absolutely certain? Do you have no tests you can apply? We have tests, which we apply in cases where doubt exists, but in this case, there is no doubt whatever. I, I am as sure that this is a time as I am sure that I am standing here in front of you. However, here is a test if you... If you would like to see it. Yes, I would be most interested. Of course, uh, for customers such as yourself, that is a small favor to give. Uh, here is the wheel, and it is worked by this treadle, uh, sort of a superior traveling tinker's grindstone. So I sit here and, and pump the treadle to get the wheel moving. See how the treadle begins to revolve. Now, I simply bring the diamond into contact with the wheel and... What? What? His hand is empty. The diamond disappeared into thin air. No, not thin air. It has disintegrated into splinters. It was a diamond, although it had splintered. That was the whole point of the joke. The jeweler was not wrong. Examination of such dust as could be collected proved that fact beyond a doubt. It was declared by experts that the diamond, at some period of its history, had been subjected to inordinately intense and continuing heat. The result had been to make it as brittle as glass. There could be no doubt that its original owner had been an expert, too. He knew where he got it from, and he probably knew what it had endured. He was aware that, from a mercantile point of view, it was worthless. It could never have been cut. So, having a turn for humor of a peculiar kind, he had devoted days and weeks and possibly months to the construction of that puzzle. He had placed the diamond inside, and he had enjoyed, in anticipation and in imagination, visions of the disappointment for anyone who was unlucky enough to find it. Pugh blamed me for the catastrophe. He said, and still says, that if I had not, in a measure and quite gratuitously, insisted on a test, the jeweler would have been satisfied with the evidence of his eyes, and we would have been richer by 10,000 pounds. But I satisfy my conscience with the reflection that what I did at any rate was honest, though, at the same time, I am perfectly well aware that such a reflection gives Pew no sense of satisfaction. Poor Pew. He always seems to have come out on the short end of the stick in our Tress and Pew adventures, but maybe that's because he deserves it. 
We hope you've enjoyed this Maplewood Barn Radio presentation of The Puzzle Box by an anonymous writer from the Lock and Key Mystery Series, 1909. Our performers in the production were Joe Bogue as Tress, Terry Yates as Pew, with Byron Scott playing the jeweler. The show was narrated by Darren Hellwedge, engineered by Pat Akers, and adapted by Brad Buchanan, with post-production by Amy Humphrey and Joe Hayes. From all of us at Maplewood Barn Radio Theater, thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in again next week at the same time for another classic story right here on KBIA.